It's really wonderful to see so many supporters and graduates here tonight. Now, just, just so the students, so the, you, you, know, you guys, you get a bit of a feel for how awesome it is to have the uh, graduates and supporters here. Just, um, I can't see anything because of the lights, but you guys can see stuff, right? Now, the supporters, I think, are sitting over this side. Are they over this side as well? No. No, you're all young and beautiful. You're wise and beautiful. Look at you. Okay, so if you, if you came to an annual conference or going way back, a May conference or, you know, some sort of EU camp, if you came to an EU camp in, oh, I don't know, from the 2010 through to 2014 last year, put your hand up. Okay, a few. A little applause. Little, little, little applause. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you came to an EU camp between 2000 and 2010, put your hand up. Ooh, that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. Okay, if you came to an EU camp in the 1990s, 1990s, put your hand up. Oh, yeah, that's... Okay. You think about that. That's 20, that's 20 years ago. That's like you coming back in 2035. That's incredible. Hand up, hand up if you came to an EU camp in the 1980s. All right. Sometime before the 80s. Oh, wow. Isn't... The EU is 85 years old. Isn't it amazing that we can gather together? We've been blessed by our Heavenly Father through the EU for decades and decades. What a, isn't that fantastic? Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together tonight as your people. We thank you for the way that you've used the EU in our lives. We pray that as we turn to your word, you might help us to understand it so that we might love you more and be your people in your world for Jesus' glory. We pray it in the name of his spirit, in his name and in the power of his spirit. Amen. Okay, well, we've been exploring together this week the genuinely life-changing truth that God speaks. He's spoken through his prophets. He's spoken through his son, and he's spoken to us through the scriptures. Last night, we looked at the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, phenomenologically, as God has delivered them to us with a diverse set of authors, times, genres, but we saw with a unifying story that finds its center in Jesus. Tonight, we're going to look at the scriptures theologically. What is the nature of the scriptures in terms of God's speech? So let's get into it. What can we affirm about the nature of the Christian scriptures? Well, what does the Bible say about itself? Now, some of you are probably going, hang on, that's surely not an okay place to start. You can't use the Bible to establish what you can say about the Bible. Isn't that circular? Now, even if I did manage to slip it by you, now that I've told you, you're going, well, yeah, that is a bit weird, actually, now that you say it. Well, actually, it's not weird Yes, it is circular, 
But no, it's not, and it ought not be a problem for you. Now, I'm only going to give you a one-sentence justification, so don't freak out if you think I'm all going to get all philosophical on you. Philosophy's good, by the way. Yes, we've, we've had lots of discussion about that, but one sentence. Here it is. Chew over this if you're, you know, want to. Here it is. I think, given the supreme authority that the Scriptures claim for themselves, I suggest to you that the only sort of argument that you can mount to sustain that claim must be, at least in part, circular. Now, you can chew over that. I'm not going to say any more about it, but if you want to push back on my epistemological reasoning, then I look forward to seeing you at question time tomorrow night, because I tell you what, Christian epistemological reasoning at 20 paces, that really draws in the crowd. What does the Bible say about itself? Three key characteristics, three stakes in the ground, if you like. The first is that it is inspired or God-breathed. There on page 28, a key passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, which we had read for us. Paul comments to Timothy, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and are useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. So, some things to note here. First, Paul's talking about the sacred writings there, verse 15, or the Scripture in verse 16, which Timothy apparently has known since he was a child. So, Paul's talking about the Jewish Scriptures, the Christian Old Testament. So, a question before we even get too far into it is, well, if Paul's talking about the Old Testament, can we legitimately apply whatever he says to the New Testament as well? Well, the answer is absolutely we can. We saw last night that the authoritative apostolic testimony that gets recorded in the New Testament documents for Christians takes its place alongside the Old Testament scripture. And you can see that as we saw last night, for example, in Peter's comment about Paul's letters in 2 Peter chapter 3. So what Paul says here about the Old Testament applies just as much to the New Testament documents because they are equally Scripture. Well, what does Paul say here about the Scriptures? He says, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, some translations render that all Scripture is inspired by God. But literally, it is as the NIV has put it there. Scripture is God-breathed. God breathes out. He exhales Scripture, if you like. The words on the page have been breathed out by him, which is actually a lovely image of God's words and his breath working together. Now, what this means is that God himself is the author of Scripture. The words are God-breathed, not just the product of human authors. So, therefore, we take Scripture seriously, very seriously, as the words of the living God, no less. That's at the heart of an evangelical approach to Scripture. We submit to whatever Scripture, rightly understood, is found to teach, to 
because we believe it to be God-breathed, the very word of the living God. And notice what Paul says there, all Scripture is God-breathed. Not just parts of the Scripture, or not just the bits we like. All Scripture is God-breathed. We can't pick and choose. They're all His Word. What that means is that whatever issue you might have with this or that part of the Bible, you might wish that some parts have been more deeply explained. You might find some bits confronting and you'd prefer them not to be. Whatever issue you have with this or that part of the Bible, if it's all God-breathed, then the one thing that we know for sure is that the Bible we have is the Bible that God wanted to give us. So we're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to accept it. And that's going to take some humility as well as then using the minds that he's given us to understand it as well as we can. Let's dig down a bit further into what it means for these human-authored documents to be also God-breathed. How does this dual authorship of Scripture, where both God and humans are authors of the same text, how does this dual authorship work? Well, we get a bit of an indication in the passage there in the middle of your page, which should say it comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Now, Peter gives us a bit of a picture how prophecy in the Old Testament came about. He writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The one true God so worked in his prophets that by his Spirit, their words were his words. Okay, but what does that look like? How does that actually work? Well, you can see the diagram at the bottom of page 28, and I'll put it up on the screen as well. We can start by saying what this sort of divine inspiration is not. The divine inspiration we're talking about in the Bible is not some sort of ecstatic possession where God's Spirit takes over the human author and they can't help but write what God wants them to write. Like, ah, what's happening to me? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Colossae. Colossae, I've never been to Colossae. It wasn't like that. It was no ecstatic possession. But nor are we talking about some sort of romantic inspiration where God reveals his truth and the human author, as a witness to that revelation, says, oh, I see the revelation. I feel so inspired by what God has revealed. I must write it down as something inspired by the Lord. Now, that might be what you do when you feel inspired by something amazing. You sat down tonight, you were struck by the beauty of that sister or brother in Christ sitting two seats up. I mean, don't look now, they'll, they'll notice. And you're so inspired by their beauty that you 
you can't help it, but, but later tonight, pour out your feelings in an, in an epic poem of rhyming couplets with some apocalyptic imagery thrown in for good measure. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about divine inspiration in the Bible. But nor are we talking about mindless dictation when God says, write this down, exactly like this. And the human author has to go, right, okay, hang on, don't go too fast, I'm pretty slow with my parchment. There are a few times in the Bible where God does say to somebody, write this down, and it seems a moment of dictation seems to take place. But it's not the way divine inspiration normally works for the Bible authors. Now, that's very different to, say, the Quran, Because according to Islam, Muhammad was instructed what to write down in Arabic, word for word, by the angel Gabriel. But that's not what we're talking about when we say the Bible has dual authors. Rather, when we say the Bible has dual authorship, God and human, we're talking about concursive action. Uh, If things concur, that just means they happen together at the same time. In this case, God through his spirit and the human authors are both fully at work together. If you turn over your page, you can see how Jim Packer helpfully puts it. He says, we are to think of the spirit's inspiring activity as concursive, that is, as exercised in, through, and by means of the writer's own activity in such a way that their thinking and writing was both free and spontaneous on their part and divinely elicited and controlled. And what they wrote was not only their own work, but also God's work. So like all other human authors, the biblical authors chose their words carefully. They deliberated about what words to use. They thought about what events to include. They used other material that they had at their disposal. They sometimes mixed their metaphors. They even sometimes used poor grammar. And yet, at the same time, They were carried along by the Spirit of God in all that activity so that what they wrote were God's words, words that were truly God-breathed. So this dual authorship of the Scriptures has significant consequences for us. First, as I mentioned, we take the Bible seriously as the very words of God. Our conviction, because all of Scripture is God-breathed, is that what Scripture says is what God intended it to say. But also, we take the Bible seriously as the product of human authors. The human authors were writing within their own time and space. They were writing from the circumstances in which God had placed them and with the limitations of their own perspective, plus whatever wisdom and insight God gave them. So yes, God was working in and through them by His Spirit so that what they wrote were His words, but they were His words expressed in their freely chosen words. And so when we come to understand the Scriptures, 
it's right that we apply all the sensible reading strategies that you would use to understand any other human author. So that's our first stake in the ground on the nature of Scripture. It is God-breathed. Our second stake follows on from the first. If all Scripture is God-breathed, then it's also completely trustworthy. Now, whether we can trust the Bible is a super important question. Super important. In our so many areas of life, the Bible says things that our society doesn't like. In fact, um, doesn't like hardly cuts it, does it? The Bible says lots of things that our society hates, like eternal judgment, like hell, like that sex outside of marriage displeases God, that marriage is for a man and a woman, that Jesus is the only way to God. And we could just go on, couldn't we, right? So whether we can trust the Bible or not on these issues really matters. But also at a personal level, can I trust that God really loves me? Can I really trust that my sins have been forgiven? Can I really be sure that God is with me when, frankly, everything seems to be going down the drain? Now, the Bible answers all those questions in the affirmative. Yes, in Christ, you can be sure that your heavenly Father loves you, your sins are forgiven in Jesus, and He's with you by His Spirit. Well, great, it says those things, but can I trust what it says? Well, the starting point for working out whether we can trust the Bible is the trustworthiness of God. Is God trustworthy? Well, the answer in the Scriptures again and again is yes. He's completely trustworthy. It is in the very nature of His being as the Lord. Have a look on page 29 at a verse we looked at on Monday morning, Exodus 34, verse 6 when the Lord revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. We read there, And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That word faithfulness means he keeps his word. He does what he says. He speaks truly. Or in Isaiah 45, verse 19 there, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Or Numbers 23, verse 19, Balaam, uh, relaying a message from the Lord, says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer being, no, when he speaks, he acts. When he promises, he does fulfill. And then John, in his gospel, tells us that we see the character of God revealed most clearly in Jesus. The Word of God become flesh. John 1.14, the Word became flesh, made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, full of grace and truth, is a deliberate echo 
of Exodus 34, 6 that we started with, abounding in love and faithfulness. Just as the Lord revealed himself to Moses to be abounding in faithfulness, in being true to his word, when God, the eternal word, took flesh amongst us, he revealed even more clearly just how full of truth he is. And so we could go on, looking at the other passages there on your page. But the repeated testimony is that, yes, the one true living God is trustworthy. His word is truth. So the implication for the Bible is pretty straightforward. If all scripture is God-breathed and God is trustworthy, then yes, the Bible is trustworthy too. The trustworthiness of the Bible rests entirely on the trustworthiness of the God who breathed it out. But there's an important second question we need to ask at this point. We started by asking, can we trust the Bible? I want to respond to that question by asking, trust it for what? Over the page to page 30. When we ask, trust the Bible for what? I think the answer has to be, we trust it for the purposes for which God has given it. Let's give you an example. Do you um, trust your Bible, God's Bible, to tell you how to drive a car? Well, uh, interestingly, it tells you to obey the laws that the government sets down for your good. It tells you to be patient, self-controlled, other person-centered. So actually it tells you about you, doesn't it? It tells you a lot about you as a driver. And you're just going, oh, wow, I've never thought of that ever before in my life. Wow, being a Christian affects how you drive. There you go. But it doesn't tell you how to drive the car. So if you rocked up to your driving test hoping to get your P's and you said, look, um, I decided I wouldn't do my 120 hours of driving practice because I figured I'd just trust the Bible to teach me how to drive. So I spent the 120 hours reading the Bible. Okay? Well, I reckon they would write your name down just so they could make a note in their system to never, ever, ever give you a license. You don't just trust the Bible for whatever we decide to trust it for. We trust it for the purposes for which God has given it. It could make you then ask, right, well, what are the purposes for which God has breathed out the Scriptures? see two passages there which help us on your page first 2 peter 1 verses 2 to 4 may grace and peace peter writes be yours in abundance in the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord his divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness what has god given us through our knowledge of him and of the Lord Jesus, verse 3 says there, it's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of him, which as we've seen all week, comes from his word, he has given us everything we need for a godly life. That seems to be the purpose, life and godliness in Christ. Similar message there in 2 Timothy 3, 
with which we had read at the beginning of this evening. According to Paul in that passage, what is the purpose, the end to which God is working through the Scriptures? Well, when you look at the passage, it's that we'd come to salvation through faith in Christ and that we'd be taught, reproved, corrected, trained in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. It sounds pretty familiar, actually, pretty similar to Peter's summary. It's about life in Christ and godliness in Christ. So we come to the Bible ready to trust it as the words of God, trusting that through it God is going to achieve his purpose, which is to give us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. On the flip side, as we saw with the driving example, it will be foolish to trust the Bible for something for which God did not give it. Let me give you a particular example of that. And lots of places in the Bible, you can find what seems to be a three-tiered cosmology. Divides the universe into three sort of levels. So an example would be Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, which is a verse you probably know well. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You can find that same threefold division of creation in Revelation 5 or reflected in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Now here's the thought. Because this three-tiered division of the universe is mentioned in the Bible, does that mean that God wants you to throw out whatever astronomy or cosmology you've learned along the way and instead, you should adhere to a strict three-tiered understanding of reality. That there's the earth, there's the heaven, and there's under the earth, and there's beings who can bend their knee in each of those locations. Is that what God is telling you to do? Chuck out what you thought you knew and understand that reality really is like this. I don't think that's what God is asking us to do. Not if it was not the purpose of what he was trying to tell you in those words. John Woodhouse puts it like this. You can see it on your page. Did the Bible writers believe in a three-tiered universe? Possibly, he says. Did God correct that understanding? Possibly not if his purpose was unaffected by it. He then goes on to ask, does the Bible teach a three-tiered universe? He says, I don't think so. But the language of the writers that may suggest that they had a cosmology different from ours is not an error. It is what God intended to say as he testifies to his promise. Because that's his purpose, to testify to his promises. And his testimony, John writes, is completely true. So just because the human authors mentioned a three-tiered universe does not mean that God is trying to teach that to us. They wrote as real people of their own time with the limitations that they had other than whatever God chose to reveal to them through the wisdom that he gave. 
So the question we need to keep asking ourselves is, what was his purpose through the words that they wrote? And in Philippians chapter 2, that purpose is very clear, actually. It's to make clear that Jesus has the authority of God himself such that every being in all of creation will bow before him on that last day. So let me draw those thoughts together. For what do we trust the Bible? We trust it for the purposes for which God has given it. What are those purposes? To give us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. And what then becomes important is that we learn to rightly discern the purpose of God in any particular text so that we know that we're trusting the Bible for the right things. And the key skill in learning to discern God's purpose in a text is to become what I call a responsible reader. What do I mean by reading responsibly? I mean reading the text of Scripture attentive to the purpose or the intent of the authors behind it, both human and divine. How do you read responsibly? Here are my four tips. Here we go. First of all, pay attention to its context. How does this bit of Scripture fit into the bits around it? Where is the author driving in this section of text? Second, pay attention to its genre. What type of literature is it? and read it appropriately. If it's poetry or apocalyptic, don't necessarily take it literally, but look for the truth that it is communicating. If it's wisdom or proverbs, don't demand that it be true in every instance in life, because that's not how proverbs and wisdom sayings work, but take it as a generally true statement about life in God's world. If it's a letter in the New Testament, then be alert to the fact there may be situational factors that influence what the author said to that particular group of Christians at that particular time. Pay attention to its genre. Thirdly, look for connections between what is said here and what is said elsewhere in Scripture. Is this idea here in this text a significant theme elsewhere in the Bible? Is this text here picking up on something earlier in the Scriptures, or is this text here picked up later elsewhere in the scriptures. Use the scripture to interpret the scripture. And finally, see how it connects to the heart of God's revelation, namely Jesus and his gospel. I think if you use those four tips, you'll be on track to being a responsible reader who will rightly discern God's purpose in a text. But you know, pray for wisdom from the Spirit. That helps too. Okay, a summary. How would you summarize this sort of attitude towards the trustworthiness of the Scripture? I think a good summary would be the first statement in the EU and the AFES doctrinal basis, which is there at the bottom of page 30. The EU upholds the fundamental truths of Christianity, including, as statement number one, the divine inspiration and infallibility of holy scripture as originally given and its supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Infallibility just means will not fail. Scripture will not fail. It is reliable. It will achieve God's purpose. And in particular here in the doctrinal basis, it focuses on all matters of faith and conduct 
which is very similar to the purposes we saw at the top of that page in 2 Peter and 2 Timothy, life and godliness in Christ. But on the next page, page 31, I want to pose a slightly unsettling and maybe disputed question. Is it possible that the Bible contains mistakes? Now, I'm not talking about textual variations, I mentioned that last night, or translation challenges. I'm happy to take that at question time tomorrow. I'm talking about when they were first breathed out by God, or as the EU doctrinal basis puts it, as they were originally given. Is it possible that those original manuscripts contain mistakes? Well, first, it's important to note that there is a broad area of evangelical agreement. All evangelicals agree, I think, on these particular points. First, human authors of Scripture used techniques of their time. They didn't write history the way we do today. It was unremarkable for them to sometimes use rounded numbers, like rounded up, rounded down. They'd use rounded numbers. They might quote an older text somewhat freely by our standards, even sometimes to vary the order in which events occurred. No one expects these ancient authors to write as though they were writing today. Second, there remain, though, some difficult-to-explain passages. Just to pick on one detail from Jesus' resurrection accounts, when they discovered Jesus' empty tomb, was there one young man sitting on the right side, which is what Matthew and Mark say, or were there two men standing beside them, which is what Luke and John say? Or another one, did Jesus heal Bartimaeus on the way into Jericho, as Luke records it, or on the way out, as Mark says? These are passages, and there's more, where no one, I think, has a great answer. Everyone acknowledges that they're difficult. It seems that someone has it wrong, or there must be some sort of explanation, but no one's really sure what the right explanation is. Third point of agreement. Most acknowledge that the purpose of a passage must be taken into account, which is what we were talking about before. Fourth. Whatever God is found to teach will be without error because God speaks truth. He's trustworthy. And then finally, no evangelical claims that all the details are irrelevant. You know, history or geography or whatever. No, the details do matter, at least to some significant extent, because we believe that Christianity is a faith based on actual events in real places at real time in history. None of us are going to say that all the historical details are unimportant. So that's the broad area of evangelical agreement. Flowing out of that broad agreement comes the area of evangelical discussion. So some evangelicals say that the Bible is inerrant as well as infallible. By inerrant, we mean free of error of any type, that after taking account of genre and different standards of writing, etc., the Bible will be free of any errors, whether that be history, science, geography, or theology. Now, why might you say that is the case? 
was you can see in the box to the left, the reasoning goes, God would not allow errors of any kind because he only speaks truth. And he's the author of all scripture. Therefore, there must be some explanation yet to be found of the problematic passages. On the other hand, some evangelicals hold the position that whilst the Bible is certainly infallible, it's not necessarily inerrant. How so? Well, you can see in the box on the right, their thinking goes, God has no need to correct a misunderstanding of human authors when it has no bearing on what he is teaching. Therefore, we can live with some possible inconsistencies without anxiety. Well, which is right? Well, it's an area of evangelical discussion. I will just point out an interesting observation made by Andrew Sheed on his reflections on Jeremiah 32, verses 6 to 9. I'll read out the Jeremiah passage first, which is there on your page. Notice here what God says will happen and then what Jeremiah says happens. Just note the difference. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle, Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. If you compare carefully what God says Hanamel will say and what Hanamel actually says, they're, they're actually different. Hanamel adds, in the land of Benjamin, and he says the right of possession and redemption, not just redemption. And the Lord says, Hanamel will say, redemption by purchase, which Hanamel actually leaves out. So notice Andrew Sheed's comment. The scriptural version of this episode presents both forms of words, God's and Hanamel's, as the word of God. Indeed, as the same word of God. It is clear that the determinative reality is the message, the word from God, and that the words can change without changing the words. Even more than this, Jeremiah would assert that all the words here, variable as they are, were the very words of God. So you can have different sets of words, but be the same capital W word. So maybe variations between different accounts don't affect the message the capital W word that God is communicating. Well, is there a big difference between these two evangelical positions? Over the page, Peter Jensen, who himself takes the inerrant, but in, oh, sorry, inerrant as well as infallible position, he doesn't think there's actually that big a difference. He says these positions are not so far apart as may first appear. 
Indeed, she says, it is tragic that evangelicals have polarized on these matters. The differences are relatively slight. And I think Tim Ward, who also holds the inerrant position, is quite astute when he tries to recalibrate the significance of this discussion. He says, inerrancy, in his judgment, is a true statement to make about the Bible, but is not in the top rank of significant things to assert about the Bible. To say as one primary claim for a text that it contains no errors may well be a true thing to say about it, but in the end, it does not itself say anything especially significant about it. He then actually goes on to give an example of, imagine you've got an error-free dictionary. Just because it's got no errors doesn't make it anything more than a dictionary. He then says, what is much more significant to say about a text is who wrote it and what purposes the author intended to perform by means of it. God breathed trustworthy, and the final stake in the ground, authoritative. Since the one true living God is full of authority, as we saw on Monday, and he's breathed out these scriptures as his inspired words, it follows that the scriptures have supreme authority, as the EU doctrinal basis puts it, in all the matters for which God has purposed it. Now, conceptually, that seems pretty straightforward, right? God's full of authority. He breathes these words into the Scripture. It has supreme authority. Straightforward. But practically, how does that work? I mean, how is a psalm that might be directed to God in praise or maybe lament, how is that psalm authoritative for us? How is a proverb, which is usually true but not always, how is that authoritative from God for us? For that matter, how does history recorded in the Old Testament or in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, how are those authoritative for us as God's people now? Well, I think the answer comes from remembering that the Scriptures are God's covenant book. We saw this last night. This is the covenant document that informs, sustains and regulates all the different parts of our covenant life. Peter Jensen, again, is helpful on this. He explains it like this. He says, The covenantal word is God's means of relating to his people, teaching them, guiding them, succoring them, that is, giving them support or help in times of distress, identifying them, and giving them the words to say to him. In other words, given the multifaceted nature of, of the relationship set up by the covenant, it seems proper that the Lord of the covenant should provide his people with his word in the different forms needed to sustain the relationship itself. God has created us as whole beings with wills, emotions, relationships, and he's called us in Jesus to be his covenant people in the midst of a world that's broken, that's often against God, and a world that's passing away. 
So it's no surprise, actually, that the covenant document that God has spoken addresses all the different parts of our rich lives and our complex situations. So God's scripture addresses our mind. It teaches us how to see the world as God sees it. It instructs us about the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he did. But it also addresses our heart with psalms and songs that capture the response of God's covenant people who are living in a complex world. The psalmists give us songs to sing to God, songs of lament, songs of longing, sometimes songs of praise and joy, but always songs of faith, songs of trust that he is the one true living God who's full of authority, righteousness, and love. The scriptures, through the scriptures, God gives us prayers to pray. Prayers of intercession for others. Prayers of joy and praise. Prayers of hope. And always prayers of thanks. God tells us here our history as God's people. He tells us about the Israelites, about the early church. And we learn from them. We learn from them not just about who we are and not just about how to walk in obedience and faith when they got it right from their example, but actually we also learn from their negative examples, what it looks like sometimes to not trust, to not persevere, to not obey, even sometimes how not to theologize about God. We're schooled by God through his word. Through Proverbs, wisdom literature, how to walk wisely as his people in a complex world. He encourages us to persevere in faith through the apocalyptic writings so we have a certain future and a sure hope in Jesus as Lord of all. So you see the scriptures as God's covenant document with us address every part of our being and every part of our life as his people in the world. That's how they function as authoritative for us in the richness and the complexity of life. But these days, as you can see on the next page, authority is regarded as a dirty word. Uh, Peter Jensen has some helpful insights here as to why our society, Western society in particular, is so anti-authoritative, anti-authority. I'm going to leave you to read most of that on your own at some point. Uh, It's good stuff, but I want to jump straight down to his third paragraph. He's been talking about how this anti-authority attitude has taken hold in Western society. And then he says in the third paragraph, Not surprisingly, this way of thought affects the church as well as the world. We need to go back to the nature of Christian authority. And this means returning once again to the fundamental level of the gospel itself. And this next sentence I think is key. The gospel tells us that this is a hierarchical world. The gospel is the maker's command to resume our proper relationship with him. The gospel of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the king, right, and Lord of all, that is always going to be confronting for anyone who doesn't want to have someone in authority over them. So if you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, 
and you just don't want to go anywhere near communicating that Jesus is Lord, that the appropriate response to his lordship is humility and repentance, if you're not willing to share that, then you're not sharing the Christian gospel. Now, does that mean that the only thing you should say to people is, Jesus is Lord, repent or perish? No, that's not the only thing you say. Why did God the Son become man in Jesus? Because God is love. Why did he die on the cross? Because God is love. Why does Jesus promise you life to the full, eternal life in the new creation? Why does he promise you that? Because God is love. He's full of love. But you can't just talk about those things and leave out that God has made this Jesus Christ and Lord and he calls us to repent. So what I'm trying to encourage you to do is that when you struggle with God's authority, or when someone you know is struggling with God's authority, when you struggle with the things that God says here in his scriptures to us, things that you don't want to accept, the thing to remember, friend, is God's character. God is good. He is full of love and righteousness. He's loved us. In Christ, he's redeemed us and saved us. And even though the world scoffs at what he says, what he says, because it comes from him, it is right and it is good. Remember his character when you struggle with his word. Which brings us to the end. Uh, Many years ago, John Stott summarized really helpfully an evangelical approach to Scripture. Uh, It's there on your page. He writes, The hallmark of evangelicals is not so much an impeccable set of words as a submissive spirit. Namely, their a priori resolve to believe and obey whatever Scripture may be shown to teach. They are committed to Scripture in advance, whatever it may later be shown to say. They claim no liberty to lay down their own terms for belief and behavior. They see this humble and obedient stance as an essential implication of Christ's lordship over them. Because we believe that God speaks through his Scriptures, we're committed to trusting what he says in it and submitting to the authority with which he says it. Not because we happen to necessarily agree with whatever he said. It's not that we stand in judgment over his words. No, it's because we say they are his words. Whatever they teach, rightly understood, we will follow. He is the one who's full of authority, righteousness, and love. But that's also why we encourage others to read the scriptures who don't yet know God and who who don't yet follow the Lord Jesus. Because when you read the scriptures, you hear God speak. Uh, Look at what Tim Ward says there. To encounter the words of scripture 
is to encounter God in action. Scripture is not just a means by which God reveals what his actions signify. It is also one of the redemptive acts by which God draws people into union with Christ and into relationship with himself. So when you read your Bible, God is at work. They are his words, his speech, by which he is drawing you to the Lord Jesus so that you might put your faith in him. And that's why the EU's Uncover project going on on AFES campuses around the country this year, that's why this project is so exciting. Because our prayer is that hundreds of students on campus this year would read Luke's Gospel. We don't want them to read Luke's Gospel just so they know a little bit about the Bible. We want them to read Luke's Gospel so that they might hear God speak. The Scriptures themselves are part of God's redemptive plan, His plan of action by which His Word comes to you and achieves His purpose to draw you to Jesus and to life in Him. So two questions for you. Firstly, Will you treasure the Scriptures as the God-breathed, trustworthy, authoritative words of God? In the face of a world that has rejected God and His words, will you take a stand to live by His Word and submit to whatever it teaches you in it? Because you know He's full of authority, full of righteousness, and full of love. And second, will you invite others to hear God speak through his book? When our friends and family and work colleagues read the scriptures, they encounter the words of God. They have the opportunity to meet God in his word. Will you invite them to do that? Why not give them that opportunity? All those people with whom you work, all that long-term friend, or even that new acquaintance, the person at uni, wouldn't it be great if they heard the living God speak through his scriptures and found life in Jesus' name? Let's pray that it be so. Will you pray with me now? Father, thank you for your scriptures, your word breathed out, trustworthy and true. Thank you that you speak through these words, drawing us powerfully by your spirit to Christ and to life through faith in him. Strengthen us, Father, to treasure your words, to hold to them, to submit to them. And as you've spoken to us of your son through them, please speak to our friends who don't yet know you, that they too may have life in Jesus' name. With thanks we pray in his name and by your spirit. Amen.